Let's pray together. Father, be with us now as we come to your word. Father, speak to us from that word. Encourage us, challenge us, lead us into your light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to begin a series of sermons that will cover Genesis chapters 37 through 50. It's an interesting portion of scripture. If you were to read, as I know at least some of you have, at least maybe in part, if you were to read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, you would be able to ingest only a small portion at a time, I assure you. But if you were reading a biography of John Calvin, then you could sit and perhaps read several chapters at one sitting. Today, we, as we begin to look at Genesis 37 through 50, I just want to comment that, that reading these chapters is different from reading, for example, the book of Romans. Now, now both are the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God, but reading Romans is a little more like reading Calvin's Institutes, while Genesis 37 through 50 reads a little bit more like a biography. So sometimes we're not going to be able to read all of the scripture that we may look at, at a particular, on a particular morning. And that's why I've encouraged you, I already encouraged you to read Genesis 37 and 38 in preparation for this morning. And I encourage you to read Genesis 37 through 50 and perhaps read through it several times so that you become familiar with the flow of the story. Now, we're going to look this morning at Genesis 37 and 38, and obviously I can't read all of this, but look at Genesis 37, and let me read just a few verses to set the stage. So this is what we read, beginning in the middle of the second verse. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, uh, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, which is simply uh, the covenant name for Jacob, he is the father of the nation of Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a, ro a robe of, of many colors, or perhaps a robe with long sleeves and a flowing train. It's really difficult to know exactly what the Hebrew means at that point. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. In verse 9, Joseph dreamed another dream, and he told that dream to his brothers. Verse 10, and he told it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him. 
and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? In verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, I'm going to walk you through Genesis 37 through 38 in my own words, <laughs> attempting to point out particular words and verses that I pray will assist you to appreciate more fully this history and some of the truths that it reveals. Now, obviously, we could proceed much more slowly, but I don't know how long I have as far as weeks are concerned. So I'm going to do it this way. So forgive me and those of you who become irritated over the fact that he didn't read all of the scriptures, I told you to read them. Okay. Now, the painful history of Genesis 37, it's familiar to most of you. Now, Genesis 38, from which I haven't read, is a horribly disturbing story. And to tell you the truth, it just seems to be out of place. It seems to interrupt the flow of the story. It seems like you should go directly from the end of Genesis 37 to the beginning of Genesis 39. But I pray I can show you why the Lord tells us this absolutely awful story, awful story, and how it is important and how it hits into the flow of Genesis 37 through 50. Forgive me. Now, in these two chapters, <clears throat> you're introduced to two heroes of the faith, two heroes. Now, obviously, we think of these chapters, those of you familiar with them, Joseph is, is one of those heroes, but I'm going to suggest to you and hope that this becomes perhaps more clear as the weeks go by, that there's a second hero, and his name is Judah, and he is Joseph's brother and Jacob's fourth son. In fact, there are those who would argue, and I am somewhat persuaded by their argument, that Judah is in fact the hero of Genesis 37 through 50, but only weeks will tell, okay? So you can hold me to that. Now Joseph is Jacob's 11th son. He's the first son of his beloved wife, Rachel. He's 17 years old, and I'm sorry, there's no getting around it. He's a spoiled brat. No ifs, ands, buts, or maybes. His father gives him a special coat, showing for all to see that this is daddy's favorite. And not surprisingly, you're told in verse 11 of Genesis 37, you're told that his brothers are jealous. And furthermore, if you look at verses 4, verse 5, verse 8, you learn that, uh, that his brother's jealousy escalates into hatred, which of course is often true of the experience of jealousy. It leads often to hatred of the one of whom you are jealous. Now, in verse 2, Joseph tattles on his brothers by telling his father the bad things his brothers are doing. And as you'll see, they are completely capable of doing horribly bad things. But understandably, if you've been there, if you've had a sibling who tattled on you, I mean, I had a sibling 
But my sister tattled on me all the time. And, and the trouble was that most of her tattling was absolutely true, you see. So, but it's understandable that Joseph's tattling adds fuel to the fire of his brother's jealousy and hatred. Now, Joseph has two dreams. We didn't read about them. The first he shares with his brothers. He dreamed it's harvest time, and the sheaf that Joseph harvested stands in the middle of the field with all of his brother's sheaves bowing down to Joseph's sheaf. Joseph then shares with his brothers and father a second dream. And in this dream, the sun representing his father and the moon representing his mother and the 11 stars representing his brothers, all of them are bowing down to him. 17 years old, the 11th of 12 brothers. You're all going to bow down to me, including daddy and somehow or other my mother who is long gone. Well, his brothers are infuriated by Joseph's dreams. They can't believe he really thinks that one day they'll bow down to him. And in verse 10, even his father rebukes him for such foolishness. But also note that in verse 11, Joseph continues to ponder the implications of Joseph's dreams. Now, a day comes when, Joseph, uh, when Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers who are tending sheep some 50 miles north. That's a good hike. 50 miles north near a town called Shechem. And that worries Jacob that his sons are near the town of Shechem. Now, and he has good reason to worry. Years before, in Gen back in Genesis chapter 24, a Shechemite rapes their sister Dinah. And in revenge, two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, slaughter the man who defiled their sister along with some of the other men of Shechem. So Jacob knows that, you know, Shechem's not a safe place for my boys to be. So he sends Joseph to go check on them. And when Joseph reaches Shechem, he can't find his brothers. Look at verse 15. And don't bypass this incidental piece of information. Look at verse 15. He wanders about looking for them, and then he's approached by a stranger who informs him that his brothers are in Dothan, which is another 13 miles to the north. Now, now think about Think about the timing of all this, okay? Think about the timing. Joseph just happens to lose time wandering about looking for his brothers. A man just happens to find Joseph and just happens to know where his brothers are. And Joseph's wandering will mean that he ends up finding his brothers at just the right moment, or Joseph might think at just the wrong moment, for the ensuing events to take place. Uh, the Lord is sovereignly controlling the timing of events as he does throughout Genesis 37 through 50, as he always does, including the timing of events in your life, even during those times when you don't have a clue what God is doing. Now, 
What a horribly dysfunctional family this is. I mean, unbelievable. And yet remember, now think about this, remember, this horribly dysfunctional family. Remember that earlier in Genesis, the Lord promises Abraham and Isaac that he will use this family to bless all the peoples of the earth. How strange are the ways of God. Now, you talk about dysfunctional. Reuben, who gets introduced here, Reuben is Jacob's oldest son, but he's lost his standing as firstborn. And I'm almost embarrassed to tell you why. He lost his standing at firstborn because he had, incestuous, he had an incestuous relationship with one of his father's wives. I mean, how dysfunctional are we here? But, look at verse 21. It is Reuben who persuades his brothers not to immediately kill Joseph, but instead to throw him into a deep, dry pit. I mean, Reuben hopes that he can find a way to rescue Joseph. The brothers take it as a good idea. They, they strip Joseph of his hated robes. They throw him into a dry cistern. And just looking ahead here, in Genesis 42, 21, we learn that Joseph, thrown into that cistern, begs his brothers for mercy. But those brothers are unmoved by his anguish cries, and they simply sit down to eat their lunch. Wow. Now, just at this moment, just at this moment, just at this moment, Along comes some slave traders called Ishmaelites in verse 25, Midianites in verse 28. It's the same group of people. And it's a, by the way, I can't go into this. It's a long, long story. But in fact, these people are distant relatives of these brothers. In verse 26, Judah, brother number four, Judah now steps into the picture, and he argues nothing will be gained by killing one of their brothers. And he is motivated by love for Joseph. He's motivated by greed. Judah suggests that they could make a buck by selling Joseph to the slave traders, which is exactly what they do. And you see in verse 28 that the slave traders take Joseph to Egypt, and you see in verse 36 that they sell him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and a captain of the guard. Now, apparently Reuben wasn't with his brothers when they did all of this because now he returns and he finds Joseph is gone and he's distraught. How's he going to explain to his father why Joseph is missing? But the brothers have a plan. They take Joseph's coat, they dip it in the blood of a goat, and they take it back to Jacob. Joseph's coat soaked in the blood of a goat. And they ask Joseph, can you identify this coat? How heartless is that? Now just stop a minute. And think about Jacob just for a second. 
Do you remember? Do you remember how decades earlier in the book of Genesis, Jacob stole his older brother Esau's blessing? How? By using a goat and Esau's clothing. Now it's Jacob who's fooled by clothing and the blood of a goat. What goes around comes around. And Jacob's heartbroken. He weeps. In verse 30, look at verse 39. His children, including his sons, attempt to comfort him. I think the word here is hypocrisy. What hypocrisy on the part of those brothers. Now, if you're Joseph, I'll be right back. I'm back. Now, if you're Joseph, what are you thinking? What are you thinking as you find yourself sold into slavery? Forget the fact that you know the end of this story from the beginning. What's Joseph thinking? How in the world does being sold into slavery, how does that have anything to do with his two dreams? You ever feel that way? How in the world can what is happening in your life have anything to do with God's promise to bless you, your family, and those you love? Well, I pray that the history of Genesis 37 through 50 will help you gain some insight into what is clearly the strange ways of God, the God who tells us that his ways are not your ways and your thoughts are not his thoughts. Now... I hesitate here because what follows is even worse. The story of this dysfunctional family gets even uglier. Genesis 38 focuses on 20 years in the life of Judah. When we proceed in our study of Genesis, we're going to find out what happened to Joseph during much of those same 20 years. But Genesis 38 covers these 20 years in the life of Joseph, and it's one of, the most, it's one of the most despicable stories in all of Scripture. It, lead, it reads like a cheap paperback. Genesis 38 begins with Judah leaving, take note of that, leaving his covenant family and making friends with an Adulamite. Now, an Adulamite was one of the races of Canaan, one of the races of those people that Abraham and Isaac took great pains to make sure their sons would never intermarry with, as the Lord had instructed them. But look at verse 2. Judah marries an unnamed Canaanite. Judah has left his covenant family. He marries a Canaanite. To he and his wife are born three sons. The first son, Ur, Judah finds a bride. 
She also is a Canaanite, and her name is Tamar. Ur and Tamar have no children. In fact, the Lord puts Ur to death for unnamed sins. Then in keeping with cultural tradition, Judah gives his second son, Onan, to Tamar. Now, if they have children, the first son will be considered Ur's son, but Onan makes sure they have no children. He doesn't want to divide his inheritance with an offspring that's not his, that's not viewed legally as being his. And so the Lord puts him to death. Now, Judah promises Tamar, look, when my third son, Sheila, gets a little older, I'll give him to you as a husband. But he never does that. He superstitiously believes Tamar is bad luck. He has no recognition of the fact that his sons have died young because of their sins. And furthermore, instead of properly caring for his daughter-in-law, he sends her away. He sends her back to her own family, to her father's house. In verse 12, Judah's wife dies. And after mourning her death, Judah travels to Timnah, finds his old friend, the Adullamite, and Tamar, who lives somewhere near Timnah, when she learns that Judah is in town, she takes off her widow's clothing, she veils herself to hide her identity, and she assumes the role of a heathen temple prostitute. Judah sees her, doesn't recognize her, doesn't know who she is, propositions her. Tamar asks what he's willing to pay. Judah tells her he's short on cash, but he promises that he'll send her a goat. So Tamar asks for Judah's ring, his belt, and his staff as a pledge guaranteeing future payment. And after their business is finished, Judah does send the goat, but no one, including his friend the Adulamite, can find her. So Judah tells the Adulamite, if and when you find her, just let her keep the things that I gave to her as a pledge that I would pay her for her services. Now look at verse 24. Three months later, Judah learns that Tamar is pregnant. His response is to send for her so that he can have her burned at the stake. What a pious man. But first, Tamar sends Judah a ring, a belt, and a staff and asks if he can identify them and lets him know that these things belong to the father of her child. Which brings us to verse 28. Please look at verse 28. I think it's very important. Verse 28. Judah, knowing he's the father of Tamar's child, he confesses. She is more righteous than I. In fact, 
I would suggest to you that the Hebrew reads even more bluntly that Jacob cries out, she is righteous, not me. Judah also confesses his failure to give her his third son as a husband. And then, just take note of the fact that despite Judah's previous sensual behavior, he has no further intimate relationships with her. Now in verse 27, you're told that Tamar carries twins. When they're born, I I, I almost chuckle about this. When When they're born, one child appears briefly and a scarlet thread is tied to his hand, but then that child named Perez, for reasons I don't know, returns to the womb and the other child, Zira, is born first. Again, God is sovereignly at work, as he always is. The birth of these twins should provoke within you a memory of the birth of Jacob and his twin brother Esau. Esau is born first, followed by Jacob, but what happens? God will choose to fulfill his covenant promises, not through Esau, the firstborn, but through Jacob. Just as a generation earlier, he chose Isaac and not his 13-year-old brother, Ishmael. Strange are the ways of God. Because right here, at the end of Genesis 38, the Lord will fulfill his salvific purposes through Tamar. The Lord will fulfill his salvific purposes through Tamar's second-born, illegitimate son, Perez, and not Zira. Now, it gets even stranger. You ready for a Bible drill? Okay, ready? And those of you with computers, you're, you're not part of this. Okay, you ready? Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. I can see how many of you don't carry a legitimate Bible. So. Genesis, Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. It's centuries later. Boaz and Ruth are about to marry. And the elders of Bethlehem are there to bless their marriage. And this is their blessing. This is their blessing of the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. Their blessing is that the Lord will make their house like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. The blessing of a marriage is a blessing that refers to, I'm going to use a bad word, but I'm going to use it because we got to feel what's going on here. You're going to use a bastard. The Lord is going to fulfill his covenant promises through Perez, 
Tamar's second born illegitimate son. And somehow or other, that is so well known by this time, centuries later in the book of Ruth, that the blessing of the marriage of Boaz and Ruth is that may your house be like the house of Perez, whom the Lord bore to Judah. Does the grace of God cover a multitude of sins or what? I don't know what the multitude of sins are that you carry around within you. I don't know. I've certainly known times in my life when I've been overwhelmed by the multitude of sins in my life to the point that I've just almost broken down. But the Lord's sovereign grace is amazing. His blood covers a multitude of sins. Believe that. That blood, by grace through faith, washes the stain away and leaves you wrapped in robes of perfect righteousness. Now, it gets even stranger. I'm sorry. Don't, I'm not going to have another Bible drill. Just listen. We're running out of time here. Some people are long-winded, okay? In the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, the, genea the family, how many of you have ever done a family tree? Okay, the family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, both Tamar and Perez are listed as ancestors of Jesus, which, of course, means that Jesus is born of the line of the adulterer, Judah. He's counted, Jesus is counted as a descendant of Perez, Tamar's illegitimate son. And furthermore, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, this is the title given to Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And furthermore, in Revelation 21, you're told that the gates of the new Jerusalem, there's 12 gates to the new Jerusalem representing our eternal abode. 12 gates, and those 12 gates are named after who? Who knows? Who are they named after? They're named after the 12 sons of Jacob, including Judah, including Simeon and Levi, including Reuben. The grace of God covers a multitude of sins. Now, as you read Genesis 37 through 50, try to pretend you don't know the end from the beginning because as you read, take note of how the Lord works in the midst of circumstances that are tragic, they're heartbreaking, they're even disgusting. And yet the Lord works through all of this turmoil 
to bring to fruition his salvific purposes. A dysfunctional family, a father playing favorites, a bratty little brother, older brothers scheming to to murder and then choosing to to sell their, their brother into slavery in order to line their own pockets, and an adulterous Judah. And yet, and in through all this ugliness, God will fulfill his covenant purposes. Some of you may feel as if you're wandering about in a fog like Joseph at, at, uh, at that town, whatever it was called, walking about in a fog trying to discern what the Lord is doing. I don't know the end of your story from the beginning. Neither do you. But I pray you do know the God sovereignly at work in Genesis 37 and 38 is sovereignly working all things together for your temporal and eternal good, even in the midst of circumstances that you find confusing and tumultuous and painful This profound truth concerning the ways of the Lord, a a truth that is so hard at times to believe, this truth becomes clear, will become clearer as the story of this horribly sinful and dysfunctional family continues to unfold. Believer, I, I know it can be hard, but trust God, he has a plan even if you don't for now begin to understand what he's doing. And again, I would say to you, whatever the burden of sin that you carry about on your back, whatever it might be, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that burden can be removed from you. How far? As far as the east is from the west. It can be buried in the deepest sea. God says, I'll take it and throw it behind my back. No matter. No matter how horrible you may think that burden to be. I know. I know. You don't know me. You didn't know me when I was 16 and 17 and 18 years old. You didn't know me when I first got married and had no idea how to treat my wife. You don't know. You don't know some of the things that I've done. But let me tell you what. I stand before you clean. I stand before you forgiven. I stand before you wrapped in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And by grace, through faith in him, as your Savior, your Lord, and your King. That burden can be taken away. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Impress them upon our minds and hearts. And lead us in the way that you would have us to go. Father, life for us can sometimes be so confusing because we don't know the end from the beginning.
but we know the one who does. Father, help us to learn to trust in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.